0: Chapter 3 of The Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Gladstone's Introduction to Public Life Gladstone was an earnest student of the Bible and of patristic literature in those boyish days, as he continued to be down to his latest years. He left Oxford before the full influence of the movement led by the late Cardinal Newman had begun to assert itself in the place. His strong inclination then was to enter the church, and he pressed his father hard to allow him to become a clergyman. But Sir John Gladstone, shrewd and keen-eyed man of the world as he was, saw no doubt in the genius of his son something different from that which would find its best course in the career of an ecclesiastic. In Mr. Gladstone's time, strict obedience to the wish of a father was an essential part of a son's duty. Gladstone gave up his desire to enter the church, but as everyone knows, he has taken during all his life a deep interest in church history and in subjects of theological controversy. Early in 1832, he left Oxford and went to Italy for the first time, to that Italy which in after years he loved so much and served so well. It seems in the fitness of things, too, that young Gladstone should have passed directly from Oxford to Italy. After a few months of Italian wandering, he was called back from Italy, as Milton had been, by a sudden appeal to him to enter on a political and a parliamentary career. His time had come, and it found him out. Those who have watched with ever-increasing interest the later years of his public life must know, of course, through what changes of opinion he struggled on to be a great political reformer. But there may be many to whom it would be a surprise to hear that the invitation which Mr. Gladstone first received was given because it was understood that he was one of the rising influences that made against reform, that he was determined to keep back, if he could, the onward movement of the popular cause, and that he was, as Macaulay afterwards described him, the hope of the stern and unbending Tories of that day." the very manner of his invitation to enter Parliament must be an anachronism and an impossibility in our own time. The invitation came from the then Duke of Newcastle. The Duke represented the old-fashioned principle which set up the landlord's absolute right over the votes of a constituency in which he possessed the most of the land the passing of the Reform Bill had shaken the strength of the old feudal principle. According to that principle, the great landlord of any region where there was a parliamentary constituency claimed the right to return to Parliament anybody whom he thought fit to select for the representative position. This Duke of Newcastle, about whom I am now speaking, had asserted his claim in the most frank and simple fashion, he will be remembered in English history chiefly by the manner of his assertion. Have I not, he asked, a right to do what I like with my own? My own being in this case the constituency of Newark, one of the boroughs which fell within his territorial sway. The Duke was a good-natured, honest, somewhat thick-headed sort of a man, and he could see nothing absurd whatever in a Ducal landlord, setting up such a claim. The Duke was naturally greatly alarmed by the movements of the epoch. The Reform Bill of 1832 introduced for the first time the great middle classes and the great middle-class cities and towns of England to the right of representation in Parliament and the right of the suffrage. It abolished many of the old rotten boroughs, as they were called, and the pocket boroughs and therefore struck sharply at the privileges of the territorial magnates. The Reform Bill, although the Duke of Wellington described it as a revolution of due course of law, set up, in fact, but a very limited suffrage, and left the vast mass of the working population entirely outside the pale of constitutional representation. But it seemed at that time to all Tory minds like a measure of portentous revolution. On the other hand, ardent liberals wrote and spoke as if the Reform Act was destined to bring about a millennium. The Duke of Newcastle looked around everywhere for some rising man capable of representing Tory interests in the borough of Newark. His son, Lord Lincoln, had been a school and college friend of young William Gladstone and had heard him deliver his speech against reform, to which I have already referred. Lord Lincoln recommended Mr. Gladstone to the Duke. The Duke eagerly accepted his suggestion. Mr. Gladstone was summoned home from Italy, and thus the greatest English reformer of our time came into practical politics as the advocate of the party which set itself against any and every manner of reform. Even under these conditions, Mr. Gladstone could not bring himself quite down to the level of the Duke of Newcastle. In his address to the electors of Newark, he declared that he was bound by the opinions of no man and no party, but said that he felt it his duty to watch and resist that growing desire for change, which threatened to produce, along with partial good, a melancholy preponderance of mischief. The Duke of Newcastle probably would not have admitted that there was any good, even partial, to qualify the melancholy mischief. Mr. Gladstone declared in his address that if Englishmen were to look for national salvation, they must make it their first principle that the duties of governors are strictly and peculiarly religious, and that legislatures, like individuals, are bound to carry throughout their acts the spirit of the high truths which they have acknowledged. Mr. Gladstone said a good deal about the condition of the poor and the remuneration of labor. From the opening to the close of his career, he was always inspired by a sincere and active compassion for the condition of the hardly worked and the very poor. It seems somewhat strange to us now to learn that part of the address touched upon the question of slavery. It has to be remembered that slavery still existed, a tolerated principle and practice in certain of the English colonies. Its abolition was one of the results of that Reform Act which the Duke of Newcastle and Mr. Gladstone so much condemned. The Gladstons had large properties in the West Indies, including, of course, a considerable slave population, and when England emancipated her slaves by paying off the planters, the Gladstone family naturally and quite rightly came in for a considerable share of the national purchase money. Liverpool, Was a town which had a good deal to do with the slave system in the colonies, and in my early days I remember hearing from old playgoers of a declaration flung by Cook, the great tragedian, in the face of an indignant theatre in Liverpool, which had ventured to hiss him for some oddity in his behaviour that there was not a stone in the walls of the town which was not cemented by the blood of African slaves. Mr. Gladstone, however, did not present himself in his address as an advocate of slavery. He contended that the system was sanctioned by the scriptures, but he insisted that the slaves were to be educated and prepared for gradual emancipation. That was as far as any Englishman, not a member of the abolitionist organization, would have gone at the time. The Newark contest was fought out with much stubbornness and a good deal of passion, and the two Tory candidates were elected, Mr. Gladstone's name being at the head of the poll. This, it should be remembered, took place at a general election, the first general election since the passing of the Reform Act, the general election which was to create the first reformed Parliament. The Reformed Parliament met on January twentieth, 1833, and Mr. Gladstone took his seat in the chamber over which he was destined to maintain, for so long, an almost absolute ascendancy. He was then 22 years of age. He had a splendid physical constitution, a striking and handsome face, a mass of dark hair, and splendid radiant eyes. His face was pallid, almost bloodless, and a passing observer might have fancied that the young man was wanting in health. The fancy, however, would have had no foundation, for then, as through all his career, Mr. Gladstone's intellectual faculties were sustained by an indomitable physical constitution. I am myself strongly of opinion that Mr. Gladstone— distinctly improved in appearance as his life went on deepening into years. I cannot, of course, remember him as he was in 1833. I think I saw him for the first time some twenty years later. But although he was a decidedly handsome man at that time, I do not think his appearance was nearly so striking or so commanding as it became in the closing years of his career." I do not believe I ever saw a more magnificent human face than that of Mr. Gladstone after he had grown old. Of course, the eyes were always superb. Many a stranger looking at Gladstone for the first time saw the eyes and only the eyes and could think for the moment of nothing else. Age never dimmed the fire of those eyes. We have now Mr. Gladstone at the very outset of his parliamentary career a young man endowed with the rarest gifts, having the sure prospect of ample fortune, with friends among the highest families of the day, and with a brilliant reputation earned at school and college. He seemed destined, as indeed he was destined, for nothing but success. He came into the House of Commons at a peculiar crisis in its history. The old order was changing, giving place to the new— The whole situation could not but have made a profound impression on Gladstone's thoughtful and half-poetic mind. It must soon have been borne in upon him that the days of privilege were gone, and that the days of political and social equality were fast coming in. Few men could then have expected, even among the friends who admired him the most, that he was destined to play a supreme part in the expansion of the new era. End of chapter 3